Hello friends, I'm Jason Riviera, and today I'd like to talk with you about a problem that we all face as insurance professionals. It's the difficult client that you just can't seem to get rid of. You know the one I'm talking about. They call your office, they're rude and belligerent on the phone, they complain about stupid things, and they're not very profitable, and you just can't get rid of them. Well, not any longer, my friends, because today we're announcing a new service that is entirely free to you. It's called insurancebreakup.com. That's right, insurancebreakup.com. You send your client to insurancebreakup.com, and right there, yours truly will greet them with a video that says, Hello, your agent is breaking up with you. We invite you to fill out the form below and we'll find you a new agent, a captive agent who is desperate to write new business and doesn't care that you're a giant pain in the butt. So my friends, the search is over. The pain is soon at an end. Visit insurancebreakup.com and get rid of that pain in the butt client today. Insurancebreakup.com Once again, I'm Jason Riviera. Thank you for listening. There are two kinds of people in the insurance industry. Those who are captive and those who are free. This is the Agency Freedom Podcast. There is so much I wish I would have known before I made the freedom jump to the independent side. I mean, even now, I feel like I'm learning something new every single month. We're all about helping insurance agency owners and sales professionals reach your maximum potential and flex your freedom. My team and I replaced six years of captive agency revenue in 17 months with Riskwell. 17 months, man. It's crazy. This show is where I share our successes, our failures, and what I've learned along the way. We lay out a blueprint of how to make your freedom jump from captive to indie to market domination. I'm bringing you colleagues from markets across the country with dozens of different specialties. They're eager to share their stories and best practices with you. I'm your host, James Jenkins. Welcome to Agency Freedom Podcast. Let's go. Episode four. All right, let's do this thing. Thanks for joining me, everyone. I am your host, James Jenkins. Not to be confused with Jason Riviera, that's my cousin. You are listening to the Agency Freedom Podcast, where we help our listeners from across the country and perhaps even the world go from captive to indie to market domination. Love that you have chosen to spend your 45-ish minutes with us today. Have three very simple asks before we kick off into our content. If you'd be so kind as to do all three of these, it will make it so much better for all of us. The first is whatever platform you're listening on right now, please go ahead and subscribe to Agency Freedom Podcast. And then second is leave a review if you are so inclined. The reviews really help drive the algorithm and help people find us organically even without searching for us by name. And that is obviously the idea uh, to reach more people with the message and uh, help more people enjoy the freedom uh, that so many of us already enjoy and are, are thriving under. The third ask 
is simply to share Agency Freedom Podcast with someone in your professional circle that you feel would need uh, and, and want the content that we bring here. In today's episode, we're going to talk about contractual and physical concerns and areas of opportunity, threats, landmines, etc. Last episode, episode three, we talked about social and technical concerns. Episode two was all about operations and building out your framework. For those of you that are starting here that haven't heard the other ones, I recommend you start at episode one and go forward. Until we get done with these foundational episodes, you're definitely better off going in order, uh, starting uh, at episode one and going through whatever the end of the foundation episodes are, probably somewhere between uh, episodes eight and ten. You'll obviously know when we get there. So today we're talking about contractual and physical concerns. We're going to get into uh, some of the weeds and a lot of what I say in this episode is going to be concerning topics uh, of a legal nature, uh, of regulatory and legal compliance. I have to state for the record, I am not a, an attorney. I don't have a degree from law school. I have not uh, sat for uh, the bar exam or anything. I'm not qualified to give legal advice, even though I do sound quite a bit like an attorney much of the time. So, this episode and all of our episodes are for informative and educational entertainment purposes only. So there you go. There's your disclaimer, disclosure for today. And let's go ahead and jump right into the meat and potatoes. As an aside, if you are the kind of person that appreciates being able to follow along on an outline, if you like having the key action points and links to various resources made available to you fast and easy, I suggest you visit our website at riskwell.com slash podcast. That's riskwell.com slash podcast. And you can sign up for our Agency Freedom Podcast email list there. We'll automatically send you episode recaps with key action items, resource links, and my notes from each episode. So it's easier for you to follow along. And make the most out of your Agency Freedom Podcast experience. Uh, when you sign up for the email list, you will be, upon completing that form, you'll be redirected to our Freedom Jumpers Facebook group. If you want to jump straight to uh, that group, when you're on Facebook, just in the little search box there at the top, you just type in Agency Freedom Podcast and it should take you right there. We'd love to connect with you and start to build this little community here of freedom jumpers, as we are calling ourselves. It's those who have left the the, uh, the captive world and have gone independent, and those who are loving their freedom, uh, freedom from mediocrity, freedom from being uh, exclusive and having limited access uh, to the tools and resources and knowledge and the ability to create the client experience that you desire for your clients. So that's it for the housekeeping items. Uh, if you want to send anything to me, if you have more housekeeping items for us, you can always email me at podcast at riskwell.com. And I do read every email personally that goes to podcast at riskwell.com. So if you have feedback, uh, criticism, compliments, ideas for future shows. If there's anything that we can do to help you, please feel free to email us at podcast at riskwell.com. 
Okay, let's get to the content. Enough of that. So we're talking about contractual and physical concerns. And there are a few broad categories when it comes to contractual concerns that we are going to be looking at. Uh, the first is internal contracts. When you look at a, a contract, an, an employment relationship, uh, independent contractor, really anything that you have with someone else, another human being, there's always some sort of contractual engagement, whether it is a written contract or it is a verbal contract. In the state of Texas, a verbal contract is binding if it has the ingredients of a legitimate contract. Uh, and I'm not going to get into those because I am not an attorney. Uh, but if you look up the ingredients of a legitimate contract, uh, then you will see that, in essence, uh, a verbal contract can you know be just as as binding as a written one in some states. So uh, that's an, as an aside here. But we're more talking about the contractual concerns that come with anything that's in writing. So. When we go to internal contracts, we're going to talk about best practices and navigating some of the challenges that come with these internal contracts. We are going to be talking about staffing for the next few minutes. Um, we are going to try to stay at a high level here and not go all the way down into uh, granular and, and minutia type things. But when we have when we have staff, when we have independent contractors, producers uh, that are working on our teams, we really need to be mindful before we even start hiring these people of several things. The compensation structure, uh, looking at it from a function of your overall plan from going back to episode two operations. We need to understand what our basic financial model is, what the org chart looks like before we get into uh, building out a job description, building out a compensation model, figuring out what best practice looks like as far as your overall expenditures on compensation, on wages, on producer commissions, on bonuses, and exactly what that looks like. So before we even have the hiring conversation, we need to have the contract conversation, the HR, the nuts and bolts of the relationship on paper. You need to have an idea of exactly what you are uh, willing to do, uh, what your team handbook looks like, what your HR considerations look like, what your compensation is going to be, uh, and how you're going to break down the various seats in your business. It is it going to be a dedicated service person? Are your salespeople doing service? Are you going to have commercial line of business and personal line of business intermix? What are you going to pay as far as uh, service people, CSRs? We call them relationship managers at Resquell. Is their compensation going to be uh, in a base salary? Or are they going to participate uh, in more of the commissions of the actual work being performed? Are, are they going to have just new business? Or are they going to participate in the renewal commissions? And what exactly are you expecting them to do? What are the roles and responsibilities? Because it's definitely not just compensation. It's also, what does that person's day-to-day -day look like? And we have experienced, uh, in the last few weeks here at Riskwell, uh, we have experienced firsthand what it looks like when there is ambiguity in the role uh, and when there is not something that is specific on paper with roles and responsibilities and expectations and key performance indicators or KPIs, when people know exactly what you expect from them, when people know what the box is 
uh, of their job, where the boundaries are, what their authority is, they're a lot more likely to give you more of what you are looking for. You're going to be able to do pre-employment assessments more effectively. You're going to be able to get more out of the people uh, and and they in turn will find their job more satisfying. They'll be happier, which means in turn they will be more productive, which means they're more profitable. So all of this leads to you need to really figure out what your um, contractual uh, expectation is, what that body of work looks like. You definitely need to have all of your HR ducks in a row before you start trying to hire people or else you're going to be backfilling weeks and months from now and you're going to be kicking yourself and wanting to cuss the situation that you're in when it's pretty easy to avoid it on the front end. It's impossible to avoid it once you get into the situation because if you're anything like Riskwell, our problem, and I know this is going to sound like, oh, boo-hoo, James, shut up about it. But we really have found that it is a major problem when you have tremendous growth early in a a start of a a new agency because our infrastructure, our on-paper systems, processes, guidelines, um, checklists, best practices, benchmarks, KPIs, like virtually none of these things existed six months ago. And in in the first two years of RiskWell's existence, I hired four people. And we wrote almost $3 million in premium, which for us at the time, we weren't heavily into commercial um, at the very beginning. Uh, We have definitely become that in the last two years. But $3 million in premium, and and I already shared with you guys last last episode, we had about $370,000 in revenue with four team members. So that becomes a real problem if you don't have everything figured out before the train starts rolling. Because if you experience the snowball effect and you have success, but you don't have infrastructure, you don't have systems and processes, you don't have your, uh, your team expectations, your org chart, your roles and responsibilities, your compensation, your overall best practices for how you're going to spend your money, man, you're going to have a real problem on your hands because you're certainly not going to have time to do it when the train is rolling full speed. So Definitely a good idea to have it done ahead of time. Some real considerations here is having the right mindset for you as the business owner, as the as the one pulling the trigger on this stuff. You want to make sure that you are in the right headspace for the compensation conversation. And I would very strongly encourage you to think of all the different creative solutions you might be uh, willing or eager to do. You might uh, have as, as, a, as a flex for someone that warrants extra consideration. One of the things that we've run into a couple of times, and it was certainly a a thing when we hired uh, our risk advisor uh, back in February, was the notion of equity versus ownership. And the guy that we hired, I I don't mind saying his name, uh, is Jonathan Whitten, and he has become just a, a great solid member of our team. He and I went about six rounds deep in the compensation portion because uh, he was considering being uh, a captive agency owner. He was very far down the process with a well-known captive carrier. And I stepped in before he signed the contract and said, hey, have you considered an, an alternative? He was referred by a, another local independent agent here uh, in uh, in IAOA uh, that it was about 30 minutes from here. And geographically, it wasn't a good fit for that other agent. So he referred him over uh, to me. 
And he said, oh, I think this guy's a good fit, but he's about to sign a contract with a captive carrier. Hopefully you can um, help him see that there's a better way. And at that point, I did not have everything totally square with what I was willing to do for compensation. And we ended up getting pretty creative and giving uh, Jonathan the opportunity to earn equity in his book of business when he meets key performance indicators or KPIs. Over the course of five years, he has the opportunity to 50-50 vest in his equity in his book. And I chose uh, to give him right of first refusal uh, for purchasing the remaining equity from his book and to take the policies that he's written purchase them from me and risk well at market value uh, at some time in the future should he you know be in good standing with the office but being able to do that being able to give a guy who is perfectly ready to start his own agency be the principal and show him that there's a better way to get what he wants from his career but to give him equity to give him a stake in the book that he is building and it's a very big difference between ownership and equity. Let me be very clear here, and this is one of those times when I start to sound like an attorney, so please remember I'm not an attorney. The difference between equity and ownership has to do more with the legal structure, with taxation, uh, with the way that the company itself is laid out as far as partners, uh, stakeholders, shareholders, etc. The The people that we hire are never going to have even 1% of ownership of RiskWell. But you better believe I am eager to give people, people equity in what they're building. The difference between equity and ownership may be the difference between you snagging a great hire and someone who's joining your team and they're happy and they're fulfilled and they stay for years and years and years and either not getting that hire or simply training up your competition and watching them walk out the front door and then wait for the non-compete, non-solicit to expire and they take all of their book of business away and you don't get any compensation for it because you simply weren't creative enough on the front end. So equity versus ownership is a very important thing. Know it, talk to your attorney, talk to your CPA, whoever it is that's advising you in your circle about the specific uh, nature of your comp plan and what you're expecting from people. The, the solo shareholder versus partnership conversation at this point, I, I can say with absolute certainty that if we ever bring someone in as an actual uh, partner in owning a portion of RiskWell, the company, that person is going to be bringing in a very, very significant uh, asset of some kind that I am willing to, to you know, give them part of the company in order to get you know, mutual gain, uh, something along those lines, you know. Partnership comes in so many different flavors. So if you're ready, if you're already, you know, having these contractual concern conversations with yourself, you know, when you yourself and, and I, me, myself and I get together and have a conference call, um, having these things already laid out ahead of time makes it very easy for you uh, to be ready when the opportunity presents itself. So that's really it for internal contracts. Uh, your team member, your W-2 employees, 1099. Just as an aside, it comes up pretty often in IAOA and, and I imagine as you are making your freedom jump and having this conversation as well, you're going to be figuring out for yourself in W-2 or 1099, what makes more sense. And I would really encourage you to go and visit the IRS website where it lays out exactly what the 
the considerations are from the IRS's perspective on uh, whether someone should be a W-2 or a 1099. We will link to this in the episode notes. So make sure you're signing up for the email list at uh, riskwell.com slash podcast. You can sign up there and we'll email these episode notes straight to your inbox so you can have that link ready to fire away. We are also going to be you know, advancing that conversation from a what do you want your job to look like? You know, what we did for our most recent hire was a 1099 because he wanted to be able to come and go as he pleased. He wanted to be able to have freedom and flexibility with exactly what his day-to-day looked like. And he doesn't have quotas in the sense of if you don't meet this number, then you're terminated or you're getting written up or something, um, which is a big part of the conversation between W-2 and 1099. And all I would say is get familiar on it, figure out exactly what you want from that job role, and make an informed decision on 1099 versus W-2. Because at the end of the day, really the only thing that you are saving with going 1099 is the roughly 7.5% on payroll tax that you are not having to pay if someone's a 1099. If, if they're a W-2, then you're paying half of their payroll and withholding and social security and all that stuff. So if that person is not worth 7.65% of whatever you're paying them, then I would question the validity of allowing them to join your team in the first place. I will say uh, that my uh, 1099 guy, Jonathan, will be moving to a W-2 status effective January 1 of 22. And every hire that we make from this point forward will almost certainly be a W-2 employee. So that's really the last thing I wanted to say there for the internal contracts. Moving now into the, oh, hold on a second. I've been totally forgetting about my uh, my little sound effects here. No. That's right. I'm sorry, Mr. Boyce. Yes. So, and we're moving now into the external contracts part of the conversation. So now when we talk about anything external, there's really four categories and this whole thing is not as mandatory as the internal side of things where you basically have to have your internal contracts buttoned up you have to have the hr stuff figured out that's more of a if you don't do it it's almost guaranteed to be a big problem not just legally but also for culture and productivity these external contract considerations are more of a cya a cover your assets side of the conversation. And if you're planning on leveraging, you know, anything that you have at your disposal for scale, for growing a big company, then you really are going to need to have all this stuff in place ahead of time. Because when you are 10 times the size you are now, getting these external contract considerations in place becomes a time suck and, and it's a big energy drain. So, The first thing we're going to talk about is our carrier appointments and our MGA, our managing general agent relationships. We're going to have plenty of conversations later on about appointments uh, with carriers and MGAs and how to plan out your appointment schedule. You're going to want to have a strategy for your appointments and what you choose to take or not take. Uh, We really need to, to double click on this and I will... In a later episode, uh, we will talk about stewardship of contracts in greater detail. But I will simply say, just as a quick little note, that you know, you out there in captive land, uh, when you only represent one company, you don't understand at all the complications of having to represent 
a whole bunch of companies because every company has their own way of doing business, their own expectations, their own rep, their own products, their own nuances, endorsements, and guidelines and whatnot. And when you're a captive agent, you look at the independent agent and you can be tempted to think, man, it must be so nice being independent. You can rep as many carriers as you want. You can do whatever you want with every carrier out there. And anyone who is already in the independent side of things will have one simple thing uh, to say to anyone on the captive side that thinks that dealing with all these carriers is nothing but a, a, a carnival ride. And it's simply <laughs> the, the, the overall experience of navigating these carrier relationships can be incredibly complex. I mean, the, the appointment has lots of strings attached. And if you lose an appointment for non-production or non-compliance with underwriting guidelines or really bad loss ratio and they pull the appointment from you, good luck ever getting it back again. So we'll talk in, in a future episode about the appointments and just stewarding overall, being really intentional about your mix of line of business, personal versus commercial. What do you want to focus on from a niche standpoint and aligning your marketing and sales efforts with the carrier contracts that you choose to take on because every appointment is a burden unto itself. And if you don't uh, perform, then you're going to reflect poorly uh, on your office. And if you're in a cluster, you'll reflect poorly on on your, your cluster or alliance as well. So we want to make sure we're very intentional with our carrier and MGA relationships the vendor relationships as well. Outside vendors like the ones we've spoken about in previous episodes like your AMS, your CRM, your tech stack, your phone system, and any of these other uh, vendors that you are currently working with. You're going to need to figure out as early as possible what is going to be essential. What do you have to have to run the, the agency that you want to run versus what do you just like to have, what's nice to have around. The difference between you know, a an essential vendor and a nice vendor is very important because managing your expenses and protecting your cash flow is going to be absolutely critical in the first few years. And those you know MRCs, the monthly recurring cost, well, these vendors, they add up very, very quickly. So as you are thinking about your external contracts, you're going to want to, one, read the contracts for the vendors that you choose to do business with because some contracts are a lot more painful than others to get out of. I'm looking at you, Vertifor. I'm looking at you, Applied. Uh, I'm looking at you, Ring Central. Uh, you guys uh, were, were very uh, difficult to work with on, on that. So read the contract in its entirety because your vendor partner is entirely within their legal rights to enforce the contract that you signed. So just make sure about that. Hey, Freedom Jumper, are you looking to take your business to the next level? Who isn't, right? Write more business and see your agency succeed with NBS. At Nationwide Brokerage Solutions, they understand the challenges local agents face in the constantly changing marketplace. That's why they offer a wide array of personal and commercial markets and policy options to help you meet the needs of your customers, no matter how unique or outlandish they may be. With a team of experienced and dedicated professionals that provide you with the support and guidance you need to see your agencies succeed, Nationwide Brokerage Solutions is here to support you every step of the way. Don't just survive in the competitive insurance industry. 
thrive with nationwide brokerage solutions. Get started today. Learn more at nbsbrokerage.com. Next, we're going to talk about no. the... I just hit the wrong button. Sorry. Next, we're going to talk about the channel partners from a contract perspective because a lot of channel partners these days are getting smarter. They are getting more clued in to the availability of extra streams of revenue. And when you have a channel partner who knows how the game is played in the insurance world, as a lot of them do, and we're starting to see that more and more, where there is an opportunity to have a revenue sharing agreement, arrangement with a channel partner where it makes sense. I certainly would not recommend that you make this a regular practice, but if you find someone that just really jives with the way that you do business, it is entirely possible that you can have a revenue sharing agreement with them where they have a member of their team uh, get a producer insurance license. For us, that would be General Lines Property and Casualty here in Texas. But once a single person on their team has a producer's license, their company can get an agency license. And once they have an agency license, it's very simple for you to consider that agency as a 1099 outside contractor where they perhaps serve as a lead source for you and then get paid some kind of fee or regular split. So look at this as an opportunity for the right situation as a way to lock down a channel partner that you want to work with for a long period of time. Definitely be intentional about how you do this, but we have done this at risk well several times uh, to great success, I must say. Uh, we have written several hundred thousand dollars in premium in the last 12 months using this strategy where we allow a, a revenue sharing agreement with a channel partner. And yes, we end up paying them a lot of money if you're looking at it from a dollars and cents perspective. But when you look at it from an ROI, from a net operating income, a profit perspective, especially over time, if we're able to flatten that curve and decrease the acquisition cost for those clients, over time, it's undoubtable that it is a big win, especially if you are being very intentional with the channel partners that you enter into these agreements with. And you know for sure that what you receive from them is likely to be a very high quality prospect uh, with multiple lines of business and is likely to be the kind of person that you would consider uh, an A or a B client. We, and I hesitate to say this on a podcast that might be listened to by someone outside of the industry, but we do leverage what's called the Client Quality Index, CQI, internally. Now, we don't ever share the exact nature of this externally, but we have a quality grade that takes into account both quantitative and qualitative measures and ranks a prospect or client from A to F using both quantitative and qualitative measures, which helps us uh, make determinations of what level uh, of service assets to deploy, as well as uh, how hard or how aggressively uh, we would work to retain that client uh, if they you know, were making noise about being unhappy or wanting to leave. So based on the quality grade that you're getting from the channel partner, uh, you definitely want to be mindful of whether they deserve to even have the offer of a revenue share or a commission split of some kind. So next, we're going to talk about the outside contractors. And this is more the third parties, the IT, the maid service, the maintenance and repair, the, the 
the outside businesses that are interacting with your business on your premises or with your systems on a regular basis. You want to make sure that you have a solid contract with them, that you understand exactly uh, what all goes into the relationship. And you also want to make sure, because at the end of the day, we are risk managers and we are insurance brokers. You want to make sure that you're getting all of the things from them that you would need to receive. Uh, that's a, a copy of their insurance with a certificate that you've called the carrier to make sure that it's valid. And this is a situation where I'm not necessarily a fan of insuring the vendor that we work with. It would have to be exactly the right fit because you don't want to be in a, a conflict of interest situation or have things get sticky if uh, for some reason you had to terminate the professional relationship with the vendor where you're no longer working with them you would then have you know potential complications of losing a good client simply because you chose to terminate the professional relationship with them on the vendor level. So that's really it there. Just be mindful of the outside contract relationship. Those four categories, carriers and MGAs, vendors, channel partners, and outside contractors. Moving now into the general protections and considerations uh, area of what we're talking about here, we want to be very, very sure that we understand exactly what best practice is with these um, with these contracts, both internal and external. If you have an external contract, you're going to want to make sure that you are listed on their insurance as an additional insured party. You're going to want to make sure you have a hold harmless in your favor and making sure that it is the broadest hold harmless language that is legal in your state. Most states have outlawed the broad form hold harmless agreement. Uh, they have said that it is punitive and places too much burden on the party that is giving the hold harmless protections. Uh, that too often a larger, more powerful contractual party is leveraging or forcing the smaller party to give them uh, broad hold harmless protection uh, that ends up being punitive. So make sure you have a hold harmless wherever possible and make sure whatever uh, contracts you have have the appropriate waivers, disclosures, and disclaimers. You're going to want to make sure that you don't get roped into something you did not intend to be in. So just as a as a quick tip and and maybe even a pro tip if you will you absolutely absolutely must have a business attorney uh, that you are working with there are so many things that a business attorney brings to you as a a business owner as a local professional it's great to have for your own purposes as we'll discuss here in just a second but also great to have on a speed dial for anyone in your circle uh, that might want to have they might want to have a referral to an attorney. So it's very useful for a few things. We're just going to run through them really quickly. Uh, contract review for any contract that you are signing to make sure that something is in your favor uh, as much as it can be and that there is uh, nothing in the contract that poses a problem, that it's not written incorrectly in such a way that would um, cause the contract to be voided, for instance. You also have so many different key legal documents that businesses like ours, and especially if you're in uh, the commercial lines side of the insurance practice, all of these documents are going to be very relevant to, to be familiar with so that you can uh, be a, a value add to the clients that you're working with. Documents like a non-disclosure or non-solicitation agreement, helping you draft a team member handbook, as well as uh, policies and procedures manuals. So, you know, having down on paper what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. 
you know, having roles and responsibilities for your team members that are uh, written out and specific where they are compliant with you know, state and federal law from an employment perspective. Another one to consider is a buy-sell agreement. Our office here at Riskwell doesn't directly do any form of life insurance, but you better believe I am a big believer in the value of life insurance. I just don't want to sell it or talk about it, uh, but I definitely, I, I have a lot of life insurance for myself uh, and my wife as well. Both of our kids have life insurance, and I firmly believe that every single person out there listening to me needs some kind of life insurance, whether it's temporary term or cash value of some kind. Uh, One of the most valuable things to have in your arsenal is a buy-sell agreement ahead of time. So you already know what that looks like if you get the opportunity to bring on a partner. And also as far as, as succession planning, if something were to happen to you as the owner of the business, would someone on your team want to have a buy-sell agreement in place ahead of time if you were a solo owner or if you and your spouse are solo owners in place where perhaps a key member of your team would take out a buy-sell agreement policy on your life as the business owner so that they could buy out your spouse and take over your business uh, as a means of continuing the operation of your business in a way that works well for everyone. That may be something you haven't ever considered before. Um, But as a creative solution, uh, that buy-sell agreement can be very helpful uh, in helping you build out the succession and continuation plan for your business. It doesn't have to be necessarily uh, a business partner. You might very well be the principal and you have no business partners. You are the sole owner or you and your spouse if that is applicable. But in those situations where there is not an obvious successor, uh, maybe your kids aren't old enough to uh, learn insurance or take over the business. Maybe they don't have a desire to take over the business and you need to figure out what the succession plan is. Anyways, all of those things are great reasons to have a business attorney in your pocket where you've got a great relationship with them. So moving now into the the next phase where it's really important uh, from a contractual perspective And I say this at a high level, we need to be very consistent of acting like a business owner and chief executive officer. Too often, far too often, well over 50%, maybe 75, 80, 85% of the time, in the captive agency world, you can get away with not acting, not thinking like a business owner. You don't have to necessarily get everything right as a business owner because so much stuff is done for you by the carrier from your district office to your local territory, state, national office, home office, your website, whatever. There's so many different things from a contractual basis, from HR, compliance, regulatory stuff, where so many things are done for you that you don't have to do it yourself. And it creates a lot of laziness or apathy, or just plain ignorance in certain areas uh, that are just critically important as a business owner on the independent side. And I say that from personal experience because I know how ignorant I was two years ago about so many things that are of, of major importance as a business owner in the independent channel. So, just real quick, and I'll say this as as a, a standalone thing, uh, you feel free to disagree. And if you are, you know, of a part of the country where a handshake agreement is good enough, uh, then okay, feel free to argue with me. 
uh, or just ignore me outright. But I'll simply say, if something is important or if it has money attached to it, you've got to put it on paper. These verbal contracts are problematic um, because they're very difficult to avoid the he said, she said. They're very difficult um, to nail down if they're not on paper. Uh, this goes for outside parties that are being hired for something, but it also goes for any agreements that are made with your team or with any any party that you are interacting with. If you've got an agreement, put it on paper, have an attorney review it, have signatures, and store it somewhere safe. Because if it's worth doing, it's probably worth putting on paper. And the last thing I'll say on this topic is very simply that we cannot be documenting enough. If something happens and it is of any importance, it needs to be documented. We need to be getting signatures for ourselves, outside parties, especially clients. Uh, you need to be getting everything that you can get. Uh, if someone declines uh, a coverage item, get a signature. If someone it removes coverage or lowers limits, get a signature. If you have an agreement with someone that if they do this, then you will do that, get it on paper and get a signature. Um, for disciplinary stuff, if someone's late, document that they were late and put it in their file. Um, whatever your disciplinary process looks like, have a formal disciplinary process. A team member roles and responsibilities includes disciplinary because people are a whole lot easier to get rid of if they are not belonging on your team if you have a well-documented uh, paper trail of their actions uh, and, and what they have done to violate the code of conduct, the team member handbook, the uh, team member roles and responsibilities. If you're documenting everything, it's going to make it so much easier to run your shop. And, and we haven't talked a lot about recording phone calls, um, but in, in our state here in Texas, uh, Texas is a one-party consent state for recording of phone calls. If you're doing business across state lines and um, you are not necessarily familiar with these laws, you should probably get familiar with them um, because if you are not notifying the other party, calls may be recorded for quality and training purposes, then you are operating outside of uh, the law and you may be finding yourself at risk of fines and penalties. So that is really it for the entirety of the contractual uh, concerns conversation. So we're going to move now into the physical side of the conversation. The areas that we're going to be talking about right now is office, location, and type, outfitting your office, the physical safety of your team, and some COVID and post-COVID concerns. So as we look at the office, the, the, the physical concerns uh, for launching your agency and thriving and dominating in your market, the physical concerns, we're first going to talk about the office location. Simply put, this as I record this, it's May of 2021, and the dynamics of the, the physical context of how we operate and run our businesses will never again be the same. COVID changed everything as far as people's level of comfort and acceptability with remote working, working from home, uh, having a diverse workforce that might be virtual or completely remote, as in they live in a different city or state where they're not ever going to be coming into your physical office space. So, in correlation with our operations conversation and the strategic plan that you have put together, you're going to need to figure out what your office location and your type looks like. 
Is your team expected to come to the office in person every day? Or do you have dedicated remote team members or um, overseas offshore team members? Uh, Our office has been fortunate enough to work with a couple of virtual agents. Uh, They are Philippines based uh, and, and we've been very, very happy with them. Uh, Do you have a hybrid model where some people are in person, some people are remote? As we move forward in in a post-COVID world, I expect that the hybrid model will become more and more normalized. So we as business owners uh, will have pressure from potential team members on flexibility in their job environment. So uh, the question comes up of what do you need from your office location and type? Uh, in order to execute your vision, your strategic plan. And realistically, what can you afford? According to the Big I, which is an advocacy uh, organization representing a lot of agents uh, in lobbying efforts, uh, the Big I says that occupancy cost should make up no more than 6% of your pre-tax revenue as an office, 6%. So if you have and and this is going to be skewed for the really small early stages, if you have, say, $100,000 in gross um, pre-tax revenue for your office, that you should be spending no more than 6% of that, which is $6,000, which is $500 a month on your occupancy, which means if you have $100,000 in pre-tax revenue and you're going to follow the big eye guidelines, you really should be having no more than a small executive suite as your only office. So answering the questions of what do you need and what can you afford is going to be critical uh, for assessing and executing on the physical components uh, of your office location and type. So moving on now to other concerns about outfitting. What does it look like to Outfit the office in a consistent way for your culture, your brand, your marketing or uh, creator um, considerations. Are you going to do like I'm doing right now, sitting in my office at my desk with headphones and a microphone? Uh, Later on, in the very near future, we're going to have these things on video. Uh, So I have lights and I have a camera and a really nice computer uh, sitting here on the desk. Um, Now, you can probably hear a little bit of reverb and echo because I have not sound treated this room. But as it becomes more normal for people to be creating content from their office, uh, recording YouTube videos, recording podcasts, uh, you're going to need to give it some thought of what you need to have for outfitting your office and then also physical needs for desks and chairs and computers and network security like we talked about uh, last episode and a wireless access point, physical firewall, um, all of those next level uh, considerations. But are you going to have a, a sit-stand desk? Are you going to have a break room? Are you going to have um, you know, somewhere in your office where your team uh, can relax? Are you going to have you know, a, a ping pong table or whatever? How are you going to outfit your office? So that really is a totally squishy subject. It's entirely subjective, so we're not going to spend too much time on it. Moving now into the physical safety of your team, and this is just flat out critical, essential, whatever you want to call it. You absolutely must do this. The physical safety of your local team is working in your office is your responsibility as the owner of the business. You have to set the stage. So consider having a third-party monitored security 
uh, and central alarm system for fire for burglar is your building sprinklered now, you don't have much control over that obviously it either is or it isn't it's kind of hard to remediate a sprinkler system or or uh you know retrofit that into your building so that's probably not going to happen if it's not already there you're going to need to look at having a critical incident response plan a serp for short and you're going to need to figure out uh, what your critical incident response plan is for all these different eventualities it's a very good idea to consider uh, hiring a third-party security and safety consultant for this uh, we will be hiring a third-party consultant when we do ours later this year and um, i already know who i'm going to use here locally he's in the chamber of commerce and you can usually find a lot of these uh, former law enforcement uh, or you know professionally trained um, security people to help you develop a disaster or critical incident response plan for things like severe weather or an active shooter a domestic disturbance if a family member of one of your team members comes up to the office we actually had that um, firsthand we experienced that almost uh, at the very beginning of Riskwell, where uh, a former team member uh, had an estranged um, person that they were in a relationship with uh, that came up to the office and uh, was making a scene and the police were called and thankfully it ended up not being anything there was uh, no altercation there was no violence or anything like that um, but it very easily could have ended differently so domestic disturbance obviously a medical emergency as as a, a thing that you should definitely write down and take for action do you have everyone's emergency contact on file for your team if something happens to them do you know exactly who they want you to contact uh, name phone and email that will be on our uh, key action items for this episode what happens if a motor vehicle accident goes down if it's a key team member do you have a critical incident response plan if you are in a motor vehicle accident and you are either killed or you are incapacitated in some way you're not able to do your job as the principal or key employee of the office do you have some sort of contingency plan for injury or disability or death of a key decision maker and I'm not talking about just the insurance program like purchasing short-term and long-term disability or supplemental accident insurance or anything like that. I mean a response plan for your office to make sure that continuity can be maintained where the client experience is not interrupted uh, to an undue degree. Another thing to consider is drug and alcohol and substance abuse policy. Uh, how are you going to handle it if someone comes to work high? If someone comes to work and you smell alcohol on their breath, if someone is under the influence of opioids or prescription drugs and is in some way uh, incapacitated or uh, under the influence and not able to conduct their job, that needs to be included in with your other documents for uh, expectations for how your team will conduct themselves. One thing that is more relevant in some states than others is a firearms and or weapons policy for your office uh, for our office for risk well i'm very firearms friendly uh, i am a firm believer that people should be able to defend themselves uh, that being said we don't want crossfire and collateral damage ever being a thing if someone were to come into our office with bad intentions so the the firearms policy the weapons policy for your office are you going to allow your team uh, members to 
uh, carry a firearm on their person to keep a, a gun uh, locked in their desk. Uh, what are you going to allow them to do uh, while on premises from a firearms and weapons standpoint? Uh, that's something that you're going to need to figure out for anyone who is in your physical space. It's absolutely critical that that happens and that it is documented and written down on paper because if something were to happen and one of your team members or you discharge a firearm and someone was injured or killed, uh, it, you better believe you are getting sued. Uh, absolutely, 100% getting sued. Uh, so if you allow firearms on your premises, you're going to want to make very sure that you're taking appropriate precautions and getting uh, whatever sort of insurance program you feel uh, comfortable with. And I don't remember the name of it right now. A lot of people listening to this will be yelling at their, <laughs> their radio or, or podcast screen the name of this company that I'm blanking on the name of right now, but basically they provide uh, legal defense at, at their cost uh, regarding uh, a firearm incident. So if there is a shooting, if there's a discharge of a weapon, um, you can purchase a legal defense uh, for that. So that's it for, for that conversation there. Um, we're going to wrap up here at the very end uh, to talk about COVID and post COVID concerns. This is, of course, the physical aspect of the 12 uh, items that we're talking about here. So from a, a physical context, are you going to uh, accept walk-ins to your office? Uh, that's going to be largely dictated by where you are in the country, of course, and what sort of business you're doing. Uh, if you are predominantly, uh, say, you know, Medicare, um, or Medicare supplemental or, or, you know, servicing a different demographic than Riskwell does, that it's entirely possible that you are basically required to accept walk-ins. You'll then need to figure out what is your protocol for in-person contact. Are you going to hold meetings at your office? Or do you need to install um, some different safety measures, you know, acrylic uh, shields or, or plexiglass or something? How are you going to uh, change up the official cleaning and sanitation standards for your office in a post-COVID world? Uh, what happens if one of your team members contracts uh, COVID at your office? Uh, do you have a plan in place? Uh, have you reviewed the, the documents for your office to make sure that you are properly protected from uh, that potential? Uh, does your workers' compensation coverage have an exclusion uh, for biological pathogens? Um, some of them do. So make very clear um, where your coverage is and protect yourself as needed. So do you have a quarantine or work from home uh, policy when someone is sick or has been exposed uh, to COVID or whatever the next thing is? Because I, I realize that these episodes are going to live on the internet for a long time. It's entirely possible that someone is listening to this uh, years from now and, and they are being reminded of how big of a deal um, COVID-19 was back in 2021. As I record this, we're basically through what I would consider to be the, the body of the pandemic is largely done. The vaccine uh, in, in the U.S. has reached more than 45% of U.S. adults uh, at this time. And for the most part, the, the COVID problem uh, is, is basically done 
in the U.S. We're going to be dealing with the tail end of it for a long time, I would think. Um, but we're definitely through the worst of it. Um, that doesn't mean that there's not going to be another pandemic at some point in the future that will be a similar fashion. So having something in place where you can identify the quarantine, the work from home policy, uh, for even something as simple as as the flu or strep or something that is easily contagious or communicable, uh, it makes everything a lot easier uh, to know ahead of time what you're going to do when and if that happens. That's the end of the content we have for this episode. So to recap, we talked about the contractual concerns for internal contracts and external, uh, some considerations there. We talked about acting like a business owner and having a good understanding of the pieces of paper that, um, that affect you, that you should be paying close attention to. And then also the physical concerns of office location and outfitting and the physical safety of your team, having a critical incident response plan. And then, of course, just a minute ago, we discussed COVID uh, and post-COVID concerns. So I welcome your feedback, your ideas, uh, your critique. If there's something that I uh, said in this episode uh, or another episode that you find to be inaccurate or uh, offensive or problematic in some way, uh, we definitely would love to connect with you. You can email us at podcast at riskwell.com. Uh, you can sign up for the email list at riskwell.com slash podcast, and we will be sending out the episode notes as well as the resource links and the um, the key action items for each episode. We will, uh, beginning with, I believe, episode three, uh, by the time episode three gets out, uh, as I record this, episode three is about five days away from being released uh, to the public. So by the time you're listening to this episode four, you should expect to be receiving uh, that uh, email for episode uh, links and notes and recap uh, in your inbox. So that's all I have for right now. Uh, I would say again, thank you for listening. Uh, keep those three requests uh, on your mind. Subscribe to Agency Freedom Podcast. Leave us a review if you like what you hear. And if you don't like what you hear, don't leave a one-star review. Just send us an email. And let me know how we can make it better. Because, you know, one-star reviews at this point are uh, kind of unfair, in my opinion, because we literally just started this thing. So lastly, and most important, please share this podcast, this episode, going back to even episode one with the pilot. Share it with a captive agent or someone in your life that needs to experience a freedom jump on their own. And I'll just leave it at that and get you back to your day. So thank you so much for listening. I am your host, James Jenkins. This is the Agency Freedom Podcast, where we help our listeners go from captive to indie to market domination. Make it a great day, boys and girls. We'll talk to you again real soon. Thanks.